0: I need to pray, so if you'll listen in, we'll talk to God for another minute before we get going. Father, we do ask your help this morning that your word would be effectively, clearly taught by my lips and from my heart to these are people who who desperately need your word, Father, because I know I desperately need it. So show us more of Christ's glory and goodness. Give us receptivity to what you want us to Hear in these words, and may your word be clearly working in our hearts this morning for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, I got a question for you. What event happened on June 6, 1944? Don't look at your phones. Okay, who, who said that first? Who said the day first? Who did? Brian, did you say it? Okay, well, I got a prize for you, but, but somebody has to say who, who back here, um, Garrett's got candy for you, so. <laughs> whoever said it better fess up, because otherwise Garrett gets both those pieces of candy and he, he doesn't need it. Okay, great. So, uh, what was D-Day? Well, it was when the Allied forces of Britain, U.S., Canada, and France attacked the Nazi German forces on the coast of Normandy, France. And it became the decisive battle that ultimately led to the liberation of the Western Europe and surrender of the Nazis. It was about 156,000 156, troops were involved with that. It was the largest air, air, naval, and land military operation in history. Why was the operation called D-Day? Well, there, there was nothing special about it. D just stands for day, and so lots of military operations went by that. D day simply means the day on which a military operation begins. And it, was, it used to be used for all kinds of operations, but now we only think of it in terms of this event that happened back in June of 1944. The actual name of the military operation was Operation Overlord. There were still some terrible battles that had to be fought. To finally force the surrender of the, the Nazis, 11 months later, in May, uh, May 8, 1945. Who knows what that's called? V-E Day. Yeah, right. VE Day. So there's another. Oh, I and mean, we got candy for you if you want it. <laughs> got Snickers. Got peanut M&Ms. So. So VE Day stands for Victory in Europe. You might say that the victory gained by the allies on D-Day still needed to be applied to bring about three things, three elements necessary to restore justice and freedom to the world. Because of the victory of D-Day, the Nazis would be judged for their crimes and wrongs, Hitler would be defeated, and the people of Western Europe would be freed from Nazi domination. It was also freedom from Nazi domination for the world, because if Hitler had taken Europe, he would not have stopped there. He was going to continue on from there. There are parallels between what was accomplished on D-Day, the D-Day invasion and what was accomplished by Jesus' death on the cross, actually. The victory didn't come apart from enormous sacrifices, so there was at least 4,400 men lost their lives on that day. And for our salvation, the death of the Son of God was the cost. Also, both victories were decisive. Both still needed to be applied with further fighting until the final victory would be or was accomplished. So what Jesus accomplished on the cross was decisive, but still needs to be applied until he returns for final victory over sin, death, and devil. We're going to see today in John chapter 12, verses 27 through 36. So if you've got Bibles, you might turn there. John 12, 27 to 36 is that Jesus died and was exalted on the, the cross. This is the truth we're going to get from this text. Jesus died and was exalted on the cross to judge the world for its sins, to defeat Satan, and to draw some from all ethnic groups to himself, which is what freed, freed us from sin, death, and Satan. Jesus drawing us to himself does that for us. To appreciate what's going on in John 12, 27-36, we need to get a running start from last week's text. So as the Montoya said in The Princess Bride, let me explain, no, let me summarize. In last week's text, soon after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus was entering Jerusalem to observe the Passover. The large crowd that was there to worship for the Passover heard he was coming and they began cutting palm branches from palm trees to celebrate his arrival because palm branches were symbols of victory for Israel And they were shouting out verses from Psalm 118, which was a celebration of God's salvation of his people. And so along with quoting from Psalm 118, they, they also shouted out the King of Israel, which meant that they saw Jesus as the Messiah. The crowd was ready to receive him as the Messiah. The Pharisees, though, the leaders who were not happy with Jesus, seeing the crowds honoring Jesus this way, in their frustration, said to one another, you see that you're, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They spoke this way because they, they had made plans to arrest and kill Jesus, so they had, there was a conspiracy at foot to do that. But they, um, out of fear that the Romans, if they caught wind of messianic fervor amongst the people, they would shut down the temple, worship, and remove uh, what privileges Israel, Israel had as a nation. So they get rid of the temple, uh, shut down Israel from, from functioning as an independent nation, and um, because they didn't want large numbers of Israelites following a Messiah a king that might make, uh, run competition with Caesar. But their comment, the world's gone after him, turns out to be another case of ironies. John did this, does this a lot. He, he says things that are very ironic about what's happening. It's ironic because uh, if, in, right after that, some Greeks show up. So John has included uh, several references to what Jesus says here is the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John has included several references of this coming hour throughout the whole book of John. So about every chapter or so he mentions this happened or this didn't happen because his hour had not yet come. Well, now the hour has come. So we know that this hour that he keeps referring to is building up and, and is a very significant time for Jesus to accomplish what he came to do. It was very decisive in his mission to, 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 to what he came to accomplish, this hour that he keeps talking about. So finally he does say the hour is here. And this is verse 12, 23. The hour has come, and the hour is for the Son of Man to be glorified. Those words by themselves imply that it's time for God to exalt and display the glory of Jesus. But immediately after saying this, Jesus speaks of death. So he says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be, the Man to be glorified. And then he says... Uh, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus knew his glorification would not come apart from his suffering and death. Then he says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life will keep it for eternal life. So if Jesus had loved his life in this world and, and not been willing to suffer on the cross for our sins, then he would not have borne much fruit for his followers. But given this is the way that Jesus would be able to share his, the fruit of his life with his followers, his followers also have to, to live the same way Jesus did. So his followers had to not love their lives in this world. They, they needed to hate their lives, so to speak, and be willing to endure suffering for the sake of, of Christ. They must not choose comfort and good things in this world over loyalty to Jesus and his cost. Jesus says, this is what I'm going to do, and this is how you're going to live as my disciples. And they don't get this yet. I mean, they don't have a clue what he's talking about. That makes, sense. makes no sense to them whatsoever. So if the Allied soldiers had loved their lives so that they were not willing to risk them for D-Day, World War II would have gone to the Nazis. Even when you're willing to face suffering and death for others, it's natural to experience distress as you consider what you're going to get into. That's what Jesus experienced in John twelve twenty-seven. So we'll read John 12, 27 to 36. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has not come for your sake, but it has come for your sake, not mine. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. So Jesus says, my soul is troubled. Now the hour has come. Is Jesus relieved? No. Is he relaxed? Is he stoic? No. At this point, Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. And it's a pretty heavy duty word. The word translated troubled there has a sense of um, acute emotional distress. Jesus is really stressed and and he's really um, panicked in a way. The word carries a sense of revulsion, anxiety, or agitation. John said Jesus, Jesus experienced this same kind of thing at the tomb of Lazarus before he raised him from the dead. So is your understanding of Jesus, when, when he was here on earth, for him to experience intense emotional distress or anxiety, do you, do you have a place for Jesus to do that? Uh, because Jesus is God, so you feel like, well, if he's God, he, he's got this. He, ha- he, should, he shouldn't be feeling any stress whatsoever. But he was truly a man as well. So as a human being, he really experienced all that we would feel in, in facing uh, suffering and death. So he, And on top of that, as God, he understood the horror of, of bearing the world's sins beyond what any mere human would, could have. So it's like nobody could comprehend what it was going to be like to die on the cross for the world's sins. Jesus could do that. He, he, he knew what he was getting into. So he's distressed. In his humanity, he's really feeling it. So he alone can do that. Uh, he's able to experience our human emotions without sinning, without distrusting God, but he, but he feels the reality of what he's going to go through. And so he asks himself, in a sense, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Father, get me out of this. Deliver me from this. Get me out of this now. He says, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So like when Jesus, it was like when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, Father, if possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me. This cup of suffering and sin bearing pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And again he says, my Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So he felt the same thing in the Garden of Gethsemane. He felt the, 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 the horror of being the sin-bearer on the cross and the suffering he's going to go through. And he said, God, if there's any other way to do this, let's do it. He was, he, as a true he, human being, he really felt that. But he knew he was going to do the Father's will, and he was totally committed to do, to do the Father's will. And it was his own will to do it as well. So Jesus experienced the real temptation to want to save his life, but both here and in Gethsemane, he submits to the Father's will. Then verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then Jesus asked, Jesus asked the Father to glorify his name. He knows this is why God does everything he does. God does whatever he does for the glory of his name. He, does, he has lots of reasons for everything he does, but the one supreme reason above everything else that he does is to glorify his name. And Jesus knows that. So is God going to answer this prayer? yes. And he, <clears throat> I wonder, can we, can we pray that over everything that we do? All the decisions we make, everything that we are committed to, do we, can we pray, God, glorify your name in this? Can you pray this right now for all you plan and all you desire and all you hope for your life? Father, glorify your name. Well, he says, then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Father answers audibly. He says he has glorified Jesus' name in the past. So it's Jesus, By all of Jesus' obedience, all of Jesus' teaching, all, all the miracles he's performed, he's glorified his name through all that time. And he's going to glorify it again on the cross and in his resurrection. So through Jesus the Father has glorified his name and he's going to continue to do it. Then verse 29 says the crowd that stood there heard, heard it and said it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. So they heard this sound. Some think it just thundered. Others think, well, they can kind of hear some kind of language. They don't understand it, but some hear something that sounds like a language, and they say, well, an angel's talk. Often they didn't understand Jesus' words, so here they don't understand what the Father said. So why did Jesus say this came not for my sake but for your sake if they didn't understand what he said? Well, I think the reality is uh, Jesus, he, he's, what he's going to do later in this chapter, he's, he's calling them to believe, and he said, I've done all these things, and you still don't believe. So you're in danger of falling into spiritual darkness, so you believe now. And so they they perpetually hear him teach. They see his signs, but they don't ever really get what he's saying. They don't really understand. They hear his words, but they really don't understand him. So it's just like this. They hear the Father's words, and it, it doesn't make any sense to them. It just sounds it's like thunder. So that's what he's saying here is for your benefit. And so for you to at least recognize that when I'm asking God, he's answering. He's He's the Father. I'm the son, and everything I've been teaching you should be pointing you to my relationship to the Father, but you're not getting it. So they just perpetually do not get Jesus' teaching, and they, they aren't seeing him as reflecting the Father. They don't get it. Then in verse 31, Jesus now is going to tell us in verses 31 to 32 what his purpose in his, his death was on the cross. So the first thing Jesus accomplished in his death on the cross is the judgment of this world. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Really, I mean, his death on the cross brings judgment now to the world? I thought it was supposed to be saving people. Well, it does, but uh, because there's no other way to be freed from judgment, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world because man won't be, believe. And because people don't believe, there's still gonna be judgment. If you're rejecting Christ now, you are refusing the one way that God has provided to remove the judgment that you deserve. The cross is so decisive as the way to either be delivered from judgment or to be condemned in judgment that if you, how you respond to Jesus now in his day and as well as ours, you, you see whether you're under judgment or not. Jesus says with his judgment bearing death just a few days away, that judgment is now on this world. You're either trusting in Jesus and his death for, for, for the forgiveness of your sins now, and thus you will not be judged, or you are not trusting in him, and you will be judged. Romans 8.1, favorite verse of many people. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or, opposite, there is therefore now condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus. So every sin ever committed will receive judgment. Every single sin ever committed in this world will, will, will be judged. It'll either be in Jesus for those who believe, or it'll be on them if they don't believe. God's grace is not him overlooking some sins or being lenient. See, I thought God was a God of grace. Well, he is a God of grace, but his grace is his son receiving the judgment due to those who trust him. It's not God just saying, Ah, man, I just love him so much, I can't bear to bring judgment on him. No, he poured out his judgment on his son, that's God's grace, not not Him just being lenient. Some today reject this truth that Jesus Christ bore the sin of those who believe in Him, uh, taking our place as our substitute. They say that's divine child abuse. Well, that's a sad view because Jesus said, "I, I do this of my own will." Back in John chapter ten, He said, "I do this of my own accord. I I lay my life down of my own choice. This isn't the Father forced me to do this. I'm doing this for because I I love." to obey the Father, and I love the people I'm dying for. So, um, <clears throat> it's, not, it's not divine child abuse. It's, it's Jesus and the Father who had an eternal plan to save people. So, it's, it's, it's love, not divine child abuse. The second accomplishment of the cross was the uh, victory over the devil, like the Allies D-Day victory over Hitler that um, was accomplished, that would be fulfilled 11 months later. Satan's defeat. Now, from a worldly perspective, this doesn't make sense. It seems like Satan won because he's able to get away with quite a bit, doesn't it? I mean, if you think about it, uh, the very people who should have been first to receive Jesus, reject him. One of his own people, one of his own disciples uh, betrays him. It was an inside job of the devil who worked that in his heart to betray Jesus. How can this be Satan's defeat? Well, Satan can't defeat God himself. He can't beat God. Satan is a created being. He's powerful, but God alone is all-powerful. God alone is omnipotent. We don't live in a dualistic universe, which means we don't live in a universe that has two equal sides, dark and light, like the dark side of the force and light side of the force. You don't have that going on. You don't know which side's going to win. We just think good versus evil, and there's these two equal powers battling one another. No. Uh, If it's like Star Wars, You might just be locked into never-ending Star Wars episodes, Star Wars episode 25, Star Wars 50, 100, 500, on and on and on, never-ending Star Wars episodes. Because there's no guarantee that one side is going to defeat, but in terms of God's power versus Satan's power, it's not even close. God uh, has no fear of of Satan overwhelming him. Satan, Satan knows he can't defeat God. He knows he can't overpower him and take his place. So what does he do? Well, the, what he tries to do is steal his glory, steal from his glory. How does he do that? Well, he's trying to ensnare those created in God's image in their sin and rebellion. If he can, the more people he can get stuck in sin and rebellion, the more people he feels like that's stealing from God's glory. He's trying to ensnare those created in God's image in their sin and rebellion because he knows that God has provided merciful means of forgiving sin. He does whatever he needs to in order to keep people from trusting in God's way of forgiveness of sin. But it seems somehow Satan didn't understand he was shooting himself in the foot or if he had that, that old view of Satan, goat's legs, shooting himself in the hoof. I don't know why that was ever a thing that we thought Satan was had ghost legs, but by orchestrating his death on the cross, or maybe it was too tempting. Here's God, and he's he's just a man now. I can get him. Like he couldn't he couldn't he couldn't control himself. He couldn't hold back. He just had to get God while he could, be in a human form. But what resulted was Christ's death on the cross took away the one weapon that Satan could use to keep people from from being accepted by God and becoming his children and living with him forever. And that weapon is unforgiven sin. If you die in unforgiven sin, you will not live for enjoying God's presence and glorifying him forever. So Satan's one weapon he can wield against people is keeping them in their sins. That's why John writes in Revelation twelve eleven, and they have conquered him, that is the devil, by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. This is how you conquered the devil's efforts to make you die in your sin, by your testimony of faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. When you value, you value him more than life in this world, that's testimony that, that you have overcome the devil. And you need to know that Satan's number one goal is to do you harm, is to destroy your faith in Christ. He, he hates your faith in Christ. He can't stand it. It infuriates him, and he's constantly seeking to, to mess it up. Uh, so Jesus explains one of his parables. He says he compares the, the word of God to a seed, and he's talking about casting seed and, and planting seeds of the word of God. And so what he says in, in explaining that, he says, Satan can steal the word of God from the hearts of those who hear the gospel but don't believe it. So if you hear the gospel and you don't believe it, Satan has access to steal it. That's what Jesus said. Once you believe, he can't do that anymore. So then what does he do? Well, what he tries to do then is he tries to neutralize your faith in Jesus. If he can't do it with a full frontal attack, he'll do it gradually by picking away at your faith. He will try to siphon off the the lifeblood of your faith in him. He he wants to deaden your heart for Jesus. And he'll do it any way he can, little by little or by big attacks. He wants to, to make the ways of the world appear necessary and normal for happiness. The ways of Jesus would be weird, extreme, and miserable. So if he can make you feel like, well, yeah, i got to do what what the world says because that's the only way I'm ever going to be happy, that's Satan picking away at your faith. So in what ways have you been tempted to compromise your faith in Jesus, in Christ? In what ways do the ways of this world seem to offer a more appealing way of life to you than living for Jesus? Are the choices you're making, the people you are most attracted to, the ways you spend your time, driven more by the crucified and resurrected Jesus as revealed in God's word? Or are they driven more by the ruler of this world, the devil? First John 3.8, Jesus came for this purpose. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So. Jesus came on a seek-and-destroy mission to destroy the works of the devil. How do, how do you take advantage of that? How do you download that from Christ and and, and resist the devil's attempts to, to wreck your faith or to neutralize it? Well, since this is what Jesus came to do how, do, how do you do that? How do you fight back when the devil seeks to destroy your faith? By trusting and treasuring the one who came to destroy the devil's works. By choosing to honor Jesus to love Jesus, to exalt Jesus, to, in your ordinary daily rhythms of life, as well as in the crisis situations you face. So most of our lives are ordinary rhythms, day-by-day choices we make, day-by-day living, plodding along. Sometimes we get a big thing that comes our way, and then we have to cho- choose it. Am I going to honor Christ in this, or am I going to um, choose self-protection, and s- other than trusting in Christ? I heard a story about a Pakistani woman who became a believer in Christ, in her Muslim family, because of her testimony of faith in Jesus, her father said she had brought shame to her, to her Muslim family, and she needed to leave. Well, her uncle wasn't satisfied with that. He decided to physically take it out on her, so he began beating her up very severely, very harshly, and, and she was in fear that she, he was going to kill her. Somehow she lived through that, and later she was asked, well, what were you thinking while he was doing that? What, what was going through your mind? And She said, well, he is willing to kill for his religion, but I'm willing to die for Jesus Christ. So she did not love her life more than uh, her her testimony of Jesus, but was willing to testify to her faith in Christ, even if it cost her her life. And actually, right now, there's another Pakistani woman. Her name is Asia Bibi, B-I-B-I. For seven years, she's been in prison for blaspheming Muhammad, falsely accused of doing that. And uh, so she's, she's on death row now and they're, they're, they're judging her, and, and the sentence is going to be uh, to hang her. And people are so irate, they, they're saying if the judges don't give her the death penalty, that they're going to take it out on the judges. So there's, she has everything going against her. And, so you can pray for Asia Bibi in Pakistan. She's a mother of five. She's married. And because she's a Christian, she's, she's going to be killed for her faith if, she doesn't, if God doesn't intervene and deliver her well, you may not face these kinds of challenges to your faith in Jesus. But in what ways are you being challenged to choose loyalty to Jesus over comfort and self? I'll ask that again. In what ways are you being challenged to choose loyalty to, G- loyalty to Jesus over comfort and self? The third thing Jesus' death accomplished, verse 32. And when I... I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John likes to use words that that could have more than one meaning. So the word translated lifted up can mean to exalt someone or it can mean to physically lift someone up. So back in in John chapter three, he was talking about when Moses raised up the uh, bronze serpent in the wilderness, physically lifting it up. So it can mean that physically lifted up or exalted. When Jesus is physically lifted up on the cross, this also becomes the means by which he is exalted. Although he's mainly talking about his death because he says in verse 33 to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus says that when he is lifted up, he will draw all to himself. The word people is not there, just all, all to himself. Often I've heard this taught or interpreted this way. I mean, if we exalt Jesus, if we worship Jesus, people will come to him. Is that what this text means? It's actually not what it means because there's plenty of times we exalt Jesus and, and people don't come to him. So... It's um, Jesus says, "If I'm lifted up on the cross, I will draw all to myself." So, what, what does He mean there? Well, the last time John used the word "draw" was back in John chapter six, and I don't have that on the screen. But in John six forty four, I'll just read it for you. John six forty four: Jesus said, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him." So here in in chapter twelve, He's saying, "If I'll draw all people to myself," and in, back in chapter six, He says, "The Father will draw." And what you get from that is if the Father does the drawing or Jesus does the drawing, if the Father draws you or Jesus draws you, you'll come. So does this mean all people without exception will come to faith in Jesus? Actually, Jesus is very clear that some will not come to him. So it can't mean that because he says repeatedly throughout this whole gospel that, unfortunately, he, he warns us that some will not believe and, and they'll, they'll die in their sins. So what does he mean when he says, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all to myself? Well, it's significant back that back a few verses earlier in, chapter, in the same chapter, Jesus talked about the Greeks coming, and the Greeks came to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus, and that's when he says, when I'm lifted up on the cross, I will draw all people to myself. So he says that in this context. So what he's saying is that when, when he dies on the cross, it would open the way for Gentiles as well as Jews to come to him. So back in John chapter 10, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. So he says, if I have other non-Jewish sheep that I, I must bring them also. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to draw all kinds of people to myself. Not all without exception, but all without distinction. I'm going to draw Jews, I'm going to draw Gentiles of every stripe, of every kind to myself. And that's why he says in Revelation chapters 5 and 7, he talks about Christ's kingdom. In Christ's kingdom, there will be people from every tribe, every language, every people, every, every nation, every ethnic group will be represented in Christ's kingdom. So he's drawing some from all peoples of all, all over the world to himself. That's what he means in this text. Then in verse 34, we see that the crowd answers him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man you're talking about? So why are they saying that? <clears throat> well, they they've understood that he's Christ and that when he calls himself the son of man he means Christ and uh, they're perplexed about the statement that he will be lifted up on the cross because they, they get that he means he's going to die so they say we heard from the law that the old testament scriptures that the Christ remains forever that he won't die and so somewhere they they saw the truth the truth that Christ the Christ the Messiah is going to live forever because they see that you see that in first Samuel 7 the promise the Messiah, the king, the descendant of David, is going to live forever, but there's nowhere in, in the Old Testament that says he's not going to die, so they, I don't know, that, I think they just made that assumption, they reject his teaching by saying, how can you say this, who is the son of man you, you've been talking about, what kind of Christ is this, what kind of Messiah is this, crucified Messiah, no, that can't be, that makes no sense whatsoever, we don't get that, you can't find it in the Bible, they say because they have their filters on, because they, they, they cannot accept a Messiah that, that will die. They just want a Messiah that's going to come in and, and power through. It's nonsensical, offensive. Scandal of the cross does not fit their assumptions about the Messiah, and the paradox that the Christ must suffer puts an end to their faith in Jesus as Messiah, because now the tide turns. They're, they, for a while, they are willing to see him as Messiah. Now they're going to reject him. Because for the Jews, their definition of salvation equals military power, overthrow of the Roman Roman rule. So this is how we decide what we believe about Jesus. Whatever we say salvation is, whatever our view of salvation is, determines what kind of Savior we're willing to accept. So whatever people believe salvation is determines what kind of Savior they're going to believe in. So our culture says... We value individualistic self-fulfillment and self-expression. So my Jesus just wants me to be happy, as I envision it. I need to be the real me, to be true to myself, to be my authentic self, to live my dream, to do what I want and, not, and make my own rules and make my own way. The only Jesus I will accept is one who affirms me in, in what, I, what I desire. So whatever you say salvation is, that's, you, that's how you will define Jesus. If you won't take him on his terms, you'll make him fit your terms. And that's what they're doing here. Verse 35, Jesus says to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. So the word, so in verse 35 is therefore, so he's saying therefore, because you're saying this, this is Jesus' response to what they just said. Jesus says, They have rejected his um, version of the Messiah, which is, of course, he is the Messiah, so they're rejecting him, his truth, because it contradicts what they were expecting the Messiah to be. He warns them that the light is among them for a little while, and if they don't believe while he's there, they may fall into spiritual darkness. They need to walk while they have the light, while he's with them. They need to take steps of faith while he's with them, because he's the light of the world, and if, if if they don't see that and they and they reject him, and he's gone, they're going to be in spiritual darkness. So that that word means he says, um, if they they have the light, the darkness of unbelief may overtake them. And that word for overtake means master them, rule over them, gain control over them. So he's saying, if you if you don't believe, you're you're going to be overtaken by darkness, and that's. It takes us back to John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where Jesus is, John is teaching about Jesus being in his pre-existent state, the word of God. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. So the only way to be overcome, not be overcome by darkness is to receive the life that Jesus gives. In that eternal life is the darkness conquering light. If you try to navigate the darkness without the light, you won't know where you're going. The darkness will master you. It will overtake you. So verse 36 says, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So, can, so while you have the light that is Christ, believe in the light that you may become children or sons of light. If you're not willing to believe in the light while you have it, Jesus with you, you may be overtaken by darkness when the light is removed through his death on the cross. Then Jesus kind of acts out, he acts it out by, by um, he, he goes away, he leaves him and he hides himself. So it's kind of like he's acting out, hey, I'm leaving and, and you'll never see me again if you don't believe. It's a warning about judgment of spiritual darkness. And we see this because the whole rest of the chapter is going to talk about that. Can people still fall into this kind of rejection of Jesus today? Can you still fall into spiritual darkness today? Yes, you can, actually, because in our day, we can be exposed to the truth of Jesus in even higher doses than than they ever had it. Since he has been exalted through his death and resurrection, we have completed New Testament as well as the work of the Holy Spirit beyond what they had when Jesus was here. So yes, it is possible to be overtaken by or mastered by spiritual darkness by not receiving the light of Christ when you're exposed to it. That would be like Western Europe uh, rejecting the the victory of the Allies and saying, hey, we just want to live under Nazi domination, thank you. Same kind of thing that would be. As John wrote in chapter 3, verse 19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So the question for, for us here is, who do you love? What do you love? Because what you love, God will give it to you. So like in Psalm 109, it says, this person loved cursing, so God gave, gave him cursing. You'll become like what you love and what you trust and what you treasure. So whatever you love, you'll, whatever you trust in, whatever you treasure, you're going to become like that. So the truth we've been seeing here is Jesus was exalted on the cross to judge the world for its sins, to defeat Satan and to draw some from all ethnic groups to him. Jesus' D-Day has freed you to come to him. He's drawing you through his word. The sin-forgiving, Satan-conquering, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is able to set you free, to to, to liberate you from spiritual darkness, devil and death. So if you don't like sin, death, and devil, trust in Jesus. If you like sin, death, and devil, then he'll give it to you, and you'll live in that environment forever. But if you hate those things and you want to be freed from them, trust in Jesus now, and he will set you free. Believe while you have the light of the gospel, is what Jesus is saying to us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son being willing to take my sin and the sins of all your people on himself on the cross and be judged in my place so that we could be set free from bondage to sin, unforgiven sin, snare of the devil, and death, and we could live with you in joy forever. We confess, Father, that that our hearts are easily distracted off from things that would build our faith and keep our faith pure in Jesus. We are so prone to to wander. We're so prone to get off track and and hooks in our mouths that draw us into the snares that that the world, the flesh, and the devil set for us. So we're so easily tempted, Father, to get off track from, from loving Jesus, treasuring him most of all, and from trusting in him. So we ask your help. May we see those ways, Father, that we have been trusting and treasuring other things where we're becoming more and more like, squeezing into the mold the world sets for us rather than being formed into the image that Christ has redeemed us into. He set us free from these things, so help us, Father. Bless us, cause us to see the glory of Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Father, we weren't there to see him, but you've given us your word your word has revealed us to Him, And so we have a great privilege. We have so much more going for us than they did. And so may we value what you've given to us. And may we live fully in the light of it by your spirit, by your grace. This we ask in Christ's name.